CCR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday the 6th of June at 7am. My name is Carnegie and I'm joined in the studio today with Fung and Ivka. Good morning. 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 How are you guys? Good. Um, Ivka, I feel like you had a pretty nice weekend. Uh, yes. Home. Yeah, I spent a week down in Queenscliff on Wadarung Country where I grew up. It was very wholesome. I haven't spent that much time down there in a long while and I, I volunteer for Queenscliff Music Festival and so we did some, uh, like we had a meeting and then the Waves played at the Town Hall for their 20th anniversary of the Up All Night album. So it was nice to see all of the people that I grew up with, all of my mum's friends, for example, um, and people that are really committed to the town. So that was very sweet. That sounds so nice. It really does. <laughs> I'd love to go there. I've never been. It, it is. It's beautiful. I mean, I feel quite biased, obviously. Um, <laughs> I did grow up there and my dad still lives there, but... On one side, you've got Port Phillip Bay and it's very like calm ocean. And then on the other side, it's uh, Swan Bay. And so there's all like black swans and then there's the rolling Port Arlington Hills and the wow. other side. It's very, very picturesque. Yes, you should definitely visit. For sure. Yeah, we can do a Tuesday breakfast excursion. Yeah, to road Queen's trip. Room. Yeah. Yeah. Let's broadcast from there. <laughs> wow. Live from the road. <laughs> exactly. That would be so much fun, actually. It would. Um, how was your weekend, Fung? It was good. I had a quiet one, which was really nice. I feel like every now and then you just need a weekend where you don't really do much yeah. or you get a lot of chores done and and afterwards you just feel amazing. So <laughs> did that. Felt really productive. Felt really just calm after having <laughs> cleaned the house and everything like that. So it was pretty quiet, but actually felt so nice rejuvenating Re- yes exactly that's the word rejuvenating love that how about you um yeah i had a pretty chill one too um how's zelda going zelda is going it's <laughs> so good um i don't get much time to play it which in a way is really good because it like will drag it out for so long it's such a long game so um that's great also i watched the little mermaid oh yeah how was I loved. it i loved it so much i was a big fan as a kid and i wasn't sure you know, sometimes they go really wrong with the live-action remakes, but this was so perfect. Have they shifted the, like, tone of it much? Yes. Is it much, like, darker and moodier, or is it...? Um, I wouldn't say heaps, no, mm-hmm. but um, they have... The the way they've adapted it, actually, for 2023 and maybe not for as young of kids mm-hmm. is really well done, which I feel like they get wrong often when they do adaptations like this. Um, so I was very, very pleased with it. I'm excited to check Yes, we'll out. add that to the list. <laughs> Great. All right, what have we got coming up on the show today? 
Um, we will start hearing from Carol Bennett from the Gambling, uh, oh, sorry, Alliance for Gambling Reform, speaking with Annie McLaughlin on Solidarity Breakfast about their latest report. And then afterwards, we'll be joined by Lana Nguyen, who is an independent producer in the arts, as well as the co-instigator of A Climate for Art, which is a campaign uh, working towards the collectivisation of climate response, uh, working with small to medium arts organisations and, yeah, working together to divest from fossil fuels and, yeah, doing their part for the climate. After that, we'll be joined by the CEO of Women's Health in the Southeast, Kit McMahon, who will be talking to us about their analysis um, of the state budget and how it impacts women and gender diverse people in Victoria. And then at eight o'clock, we'll be joined by Lisa Palmer, who is the CEO and Executive Director of Wildlife Victoria. And uh, Lisa will be be speaking to us about their campaign to end duck hunting as well as their current fundraising appeal. Amazing. So we've got a great show coming up and we'll be right back after this. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, the 6th of June, 2023. Nearly 80 girls have been hospitalised after two separate poisoning attacks at primary schools in northern Afghanistan. According to a local education official, 60 students were poisoned at one school and 17 at another. In Afghanistan, girls are banned from education beyond sixth grade, including university, and women are barred from most jobs and public spaces. Uh, The bans by the Taliban administration have been in place since 2021. Uh, Neighbouring Iran has also been rocked by a wave of poisonings with an estimated 13,000 female students uh, sickened by these dangerous fumes since November. But there's been no word on who might be behind the incidents or what, if any, chemicals have been used in these latest attacks. Now, closer to home, um, Fair Work has accused Woolworths and Coles of setting up foreign pay systems to underpay workers. So a joint trial brought by the Fair Work Ombudsman and two class action claimants against Coles and Woolworths uh, commenced in the federal court on Monday, alleging underpayment of workers over a number of years. Comes after Coles last week said it had set aside another $25 million to repay salaried managers it underpaid for years, while Woolworths has previously disclosed underpaying thousands of employees uh, to the tune of around $390 million. Uh, according to the Fair Work Ombudsman Barrister Justin Burke KC, there were failures on the use of 
quote-unquote informal rosters, time off in lieu and record-keeping on worker overtime penalties and allowances. The government has also said that it will be cracking down on um, the exploitation of migrant workers. New laws, which will come into effect within a few weeks, will see them facing new criminal penalties and bans from hiring other similar visa holders. The changes include making it a criminal offence to coerce someone into breaching their visa condition, which will have a penalty of up to two years in prison. To ease the pressure faced by migrants, the government will give temporary visa holders who are sponsored by an employer much longer to find a new job. The government will also repeal a section of the Migration Act that says it is an offence for a visa holder to contravene a condition regarding the work they are allowed to do as it actively undermines people reporting exploitative behaviour. In other news, the Greens have adopted a new policy position on Palestine and Israel, which expresses concern that Israel's, quote, ongoing colonisation of Palestinian land, end quote, is eroding the potential for a two-state solution and states that, quote, Israel is practising the crime of apartheid, end quote. The updated resolution, which was backed by Greens MPs and Senators and drafted in collaboration with Greens for Palestine and Jewish Greens, was formally adopted at the party's national conference on Sunday. While the Greens have long called for Australia to recognise Palestinian statehood, the party has hardened its language against Israel and urged the government to boycott meetings with far-right Israeli ministers. Uh, The resolution states... Quote, the state of Israel continues to deny the right of self-determination to Palestinians and continues to dispossess them of their land. Greens leader Adam Bat has also called on the Albanese government to boycott meetings with two far-right Israeli government ministers. And finally, last week on Thursday Breakfast, you may have heard Inez speaking to Lucy Loy and Robbie Thorpe about uh, Robbie's upcoming um, exhibition at 7th Gallery called Divine Intervention, uh, Art and Facts by Bundalini, a.k.a. Robbie Thorpe. The opening is happening tonight, Tuesday the 6th of June from 6 to 8 p.m. So if you're free, please come down. There will be food and drinks available uh, with all funds raised contributing to 3CR and Black Broadcasters. Sounds incredible. Um, we're going to go to a track now. This is one of my favourite pop singers, as we know from my repeated saying of this exact sentence on air. (laughs) Um, This is Loved You Before from Peach PRC's new album. You were a couple bugs just living in the mud Happily in love doing bug stuff I think I met you in a store in 1944 I probably wrote you letters while you went off to the war And we could have been two birds No, wouldn't that be so absurd? Or maybe just lost lovers that keep getting rediscovered
that was Loved You Before by Peach PRC. Australia is the largest loser in the world when it comes to gambling, over $7 billion in losses each year. Australia also has inadequate policy in place to combat this. The gambling industry has a myriad of apps and tools embedded into games and hooks children in from a young age. The Alliance for Gambling Reform has released a new report spelling out better laws and policies and is calling on the government to urgently restrict online exposure to gambling for children and young people. Annie McLaughlin of Solidarity Breakfast spoke to Carol Bennett from the Alliance about this report. And uh, good morning. How are you? Alliance for Gambling. Re- yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, cold and nippy outside, and it's raining. <laughs> um, the Alliance for Gambling Reform have just put out a um, online gambling policy statement, and uh, I've been reading through it. And uh, there is a lot of harm out there for Australia when it comes to gambling online, isn't there? There certainly is, and, you know, we have some of the weakest laws across the world, and we've been able to demonstrate that, you know, compared to other regulatory regimes um, around the world, um, we are falling behind, and we're really struggling to keep up with the the fast pace of technology and, you know, the gamification um, that's occurring, and that means basically, you know, gambling-like features are being added into online games. So we really need to catch up. We're playing catch up. Um, we're behind. But we need to do a lot more if we're to protect our communities and our kids from the growing harms associated with this. And now when you say uh, gaming and gambling are now hand in hand, uh, we're talking about grooming children, aren't we? We certainly are. I mean, look, some of these game-like features are very close to being, you know, gambling features and very often they're, they're completely grey. Uh, it's very difficult to determine one from the other. I mean, you're seeing things like, um, you know, companies buying um, gaming companies and these are companies that currently produce poker machines buying up gaming companies that, you know, are, you know um, kids are using their games and those games are actually, you know, they have poker machine-like features in those games. Um, as well and we're, as talking about, like, we're talking about free apps to kids to learn yeah. how to be uh, yeah. hooked up to gambling, right? That's right, and become the next generation of the world's biggest losers because that's what we are in Australia. We lose more per capita than any other country in the world to gambling. So it's not like we don't already have a significant problem when it comes to gambling. We also don't have the regulations and the the, the things in place that would enable us to manage the growing losses and all of the harms that go hand in hand with that. When you talk about losses, this is gobsmacking. $7 billion in losses suffered each year across Australia. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And growing fast. That's just unbelievable. But, of course, it's addictive. It's highly addictive. Um, It is addictive. uh, And, you know, these companies are very astute at knowing exactly how they can hook people in and keep them on the hook. I mean, we know um, that many of the online companies um, that have given evidence to the, the inquiry into online gaming, gambling, sorry, and its harms, 
um, at a recent inquiry, admitted that um, when people are starting to win, they stop them from gambling on their on their platforms. And we know that when they're losing, they're provided with inducement and encouragement to keep going. So, you know, they know exactly what they're doing. They know how to, to put these, pitch their games so that people are very, um, you know, keen to continue playing them and, you know, keen to lose their money. Now, let's look at light-touch gambling policy and regulation. I would like to uh, tease this out. And uh, it's interesting looking at your report. Uh, uh, I would like listeners to take into account the notion that in policies they will put things like responsible gambling and problem gambling, gambling versus harm prevention and gambling harm. These are... There's a, a, a distinct difference between the uh, power of the lobbyists from the gambling industry and the people who uh, have lived experience of the harm of gambling when it comes to policy making in Australia. So true. And, you know, what we've seen is that the gambling industry have been able to set the tone. They've been dictating the language that we use. They've been putting forward this idea that you need to responsibly gamble. Well, what on earth is that? I mean, what they're really saying is let's blame the individuals and move the focus off the product. And we've seen this in tobacco um, and areas that are, are harmful where those companies too would say, well, you know, it's not the cigarettes, it's the way people use them and that becomes addictive and causes the problems. Well, that's actually not the case. If you've got very lax regulation and you're not um, able to manage this issue, we know that, you know, it's the problem is a societal problem. It's not the problem just of the person. And we also know, you know, the other thing that is often promulgated is this idea that there's a small number of problem gamblers. Well, that's just simply not true. <laughs> if you're, if you are the country uh, with $25 billion in losses to gambling and you're way ahead of any other country in the world by 40%, that's not a small number of people. That's actually a significant community problem that impacts us all, whether it be, you know, family violence, whether it be uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, suicide, um, financial losses. I mean, there are a whole range of ways in which we as a society pay for this problem. So we have to stop blaming the individual. Um, it is a highly addictive product, that's true, but let's stop making it as accessible and, you know, put some restrictions around um, around it like what they have in other countries and, you know, manage it as a problem um, that society is dealing with. It isn't about just the individuals who gamble. Yeah, well, actually, gambling is normalised and celebrated in Australia. In fact, my heart goes just drops every time I see the young fellows living together, gambling together in those ads on TV. Yes, and they exactly. put them on the high, on a high mountain as if it's the fresh air of freedom. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, they're very sophisticated, those ads, and they're really targeting um, especially young men, but increasingly young women, um, you know, with the idea that this is social, this is about being part of a group, you know, a group and having fun, and it's, it's all, um, you know, not problematic. It's just, it's all just like fun. And we know that isn't the case, and we know that the earlier 
kids are exposed to this concept of normalisation of gambling, which is very much the case in Australia when you've got poker machines on every other street corner. You know, we have them in every suburb in Australia. In other countries, they don't have that either. Um, then they're more likely to go on to, to become... Um, gamblers, and they're more likely to, to experience harm. Now, we've uh, covered a little bit of and only the tip of the iceberg of uh, the gambling industry's lobby, lobbying proficiency. Uh, part of their argument, of course, is bad money to good taxes re- re- uh, uh, derived from gambling are often placed in state hospitals, mental health and charity funds, and so governments are reliant on those taxes. But, of course, there's the obverse is that uh, uh, the very dark thing that you've intimated, which is all these terrible things that happen, flood the society that we live in that have to be picked up, the bill that has to be picked up, and the economic losses. Mm. Well, we also, I mean, it's quite damning that we've come to rely on revenue from gambling to support other community services and and programs. I mean, that's just astounding, really, and other countries have not put themselves in that position to the same extent. Um, And you're quite right. I mean, in terms of the cost of this issue, um, it's significant. And, uh, you know, we have not really even been able to quantify what that cost is. We know what the harms are. We know the impact it's having. We know that it has an impact on all sorts of health, mental health and other um, issues that are costing us as a society. Um, we haven't really put a figure on it because we don't even collect the data. We don't even ask these gambling companies to produce the data. Most of them collect our data and keep our data. They don't actually hand it over to government. So we often, if we were to go out now, and we've tried this <laughs> with um, looking at the real costs of gambling in Australia, it's very difficult to do because we just simply don't capture the data and the, the industry has been very um, astute at being able to set their own regulations because they co-regulate with government. Very often um, in this area, governments talk directly to the gambling industry. Because they're a major stakeholder in inverted commas. Well, they're the only one in this area, and they shouldn't be. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, can you imagine us sitting down with the tobacco industry and the tobacco industry and government setting their own regulations? It just wouldn't happen, and it shouldn't happen here either. Well, uh, actually, when I was um, working on this story, I actually put a wolf in charge of hen house. Yes, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> It's a very good analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty awful, but uh, your report is actually quite a complex uh, piece and I'll put the link for people to go to it on our podcast uh, because you've actually got a whole lot of very interesting things around what needs to be done, including the issue of research and data. That's really fascinating to me that you've gone that far. But there's a whole other range of things that you are calling for, aren't there? There are. Look, the simple reality is we don't have a national approach to gambling harm in Australia at all. Not one health department in Australia deals with gambling harm. So we, you know, we don't even recognise it. When we're talking about gambling harm, we're often talking about the harm to industry if it isn't making the same level of profits. <laughs> That's how governments <laughs> interpret harm. So we've got a long way to go, and that includes everything from prevention and education, awareness, 
to treatment to research. I mean, we just are so far behind and we need to catch up because this problem's getting in front of us and it's impacting our kids and our communities um, in a very big way. So it is important. Um, and there is a national inquiry coming up, a report due out in June or July, and we are very keen to see the federal government pick that report up and implement those recommendations because we want to see real change in this area um, for our future generations, but, you know, to it's something that we need to do, like we did with tobacco. It's a very similar kind of harmful product. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Carol. Thank you so much. appreciate your time. That was Annie McLaughlin speaking to Carol Bennett on Solidarity Breakfast. Carol is from the Alliance for Gambling Reform and talked through their latest report calling on the government to urgently restrict exposure to gambling for children and young people. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to play a song um, this one is called Pataka Gudi and it is by the Nuran sisters who are Sultana and Jyoti. Um, they're from they're devotional Sufi singers from Hoshiarpur in Punjab in India. Um, they actually shot to fame in a really unexpected way because they have the most incredible voices and they've been singing their whole lives but um, they were discovered and asked to sing a song for a Bollywood movie years and years ago and over the years the song has kind of taken on its a life of its own and put them on the global stage. Um, so this is Pataka Gudi.
So just playing under there is Bataka Godi by the Nuran Sisters. We are now joined by Lana Nguyen. Lana is an independent producer in the arts and a co-instigator of A Climate for Art, or ACFA, a campaign working towards the collectivization of climate response through bringing small to medium arts organisations together over three core actions, switching to fossil fuel-free banks, superannuation and power providers. As well as working on collective divestment, ACFA is looking to create an ongoing climate union. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, Lana. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Uh, could you start by telling us how ACFA came about and uh, maybe talk a bit about the conversations that you were having around the climate crisis and the involvement of the art sector? Yeah, definitely. So um, my friend and I, Aliki Reid, um, we were in a program with Theatre Network Australia called Power Play, which was trying to get um, people in the arts to sort of focus on more advocacy projects. And through that, we sort of had a shared interest. Um, Aliki had worked um, pre- previously with the Pacific Climate Warriors, and I had worked in sort of grassroots activism around environmental issues and sort of was linked to that um, scene in university around divestment. And we were like, wow, this really needs to happen in the arts. And I guess... At the time, we were seeing you know, more and more work around the climate from an artistic perspective, but we weren't really seeing that reflected in the organisations that were presenting the work. And it sort of seemed like a broken ecology in a way where artists would make work around climate, audiences would see it, and everyone would sort of like maybe feel a little bit better, but it didn't necessarily move to any action. So we were like, how can we use this momentum and make it really... Um, reflect and I guess we're both independent producers and so we had relationships with organizations and could see that that was where a lot of our power sat so we're like how can we start to use this Um, and yeah I guess divestment seemed like you know an easy first step because it's not really a financial sacrifice in a way it's um, more of a shift and organisations have already been doing it so what we're really doing is just like creating a growing coalition of people and then trying to have the deeper conversation which I think is you know what is the cultural conversation around the climate crisis I think it is a cultural philosophical problem it's one of like colonialism and capitalism and so um, the climate union is an ongoing conversation to really get to that level um, but we want to start it with this tangible thing, which is divestment, which we can really track. And divestment's really great because you can also see the lines of connection to particular fossil fuel projects and, you know, you know, sovereignty of, like, particular lands, like with Commonwealth Bank and Santos and the Tiwi Islands, for example. Yeah, that's really interesting what you were saying just now about a lot of works being about perhaps the climate crisis or a response to what we're seeing and feeling at the moment, but it not translating into more concrete actions or on a systemic or a sector-wide level. Um, and as well as that, a lot of these things that you're talking about, you know, like div- divesting from fossil fuels, it is um, in some ways an easy first step, but I think when you're acting or making the decisions as an individual, it can be quite, as one 
person, it can be quite challenging or you're not sure where to go or who to talk to about how to go about these steps. So um, I guess it's really important to be able to come together and have those conversations as a community. Um, So could you talk about that a bit further? Was it really important that you take a collectivist approach to this? Absolutely. Like, I think it's a collective problem, so the the only solution is collective. And it, it needs wide-scale wide cultural shift, um, um, you know, economic shift. So there's no... For me, there's no doubt in my mind that this needs to happen collectively. Um, and we're trying to make the critical path to um, change as easy as possible. And I guess that's what our um, campaign is doing, is providing, you know, research and, um, you know, really simple steps that people can take so they can feel empowered because I think there's a lot of paralysis um, when people think about the climate crisis just because it seems so overwhelming and big, and it is, like, (laughs) it really is. So, um, yeah, just by starting with one step and not asking for a perfect politic is something that we found really helpful in this process because we know that... You know, like divestment is flawed when, you know, sometimes offerings aren't totally there in terms of like power, but even in the banks. And so we're really trying to like find solutions as we go. And it's really, yeah, a collective way of learning as well. Yeah, for sure. And it just makes it seem like as well as you look into it a bit more, research a bit more, talk to other people, you'll find other uh pathways, other actions that you can take or decide that, you know, the ones that you've decided on need a bit of change or or need to evolve in some way so it's not like a stagnant or, yeah, like <clears throat> perfectly set out solution, um, which is really important. Can you take us through some of the actions and pathways as part of this campaign? Um, you mentioned divesting from fossil fuels, uh, but just wondering uh, if there were any other um actions or pathways that you had already started to talk about? Yeah, so I guess um, the way that the organisations are coming together at the moment are is through the divestment of um, their money from fossil fuel banks, superannuation and power companies, trying to switch to like best options in those realms. But beyond that, we're also asking for, you know, transparency around sharing work that they've already done, like previous sustainability action plans. But I'm also interested in, you know, like, for example, with Footscray Community Arts, how they um, work with First Nations governance and what are those strategies, because I see those that as inextricably tied to um, the climate crisis. And so we're really asking organisations, what are you already doing? What are you hoping to do? And like, yeah, how can we also make this a platform so other people can see and share? So it's sort of like open source (laughs) in a way. And we're also hoping to open this up to independence eventually. Our first push has been the small to medium sector because they are funded, but also they have um, enough flexibility and power that the larger organisations don't have because of the way that they're funded by the government. And so, yeah, after this push of the small to mediums, we're hoping to open up to independence because we also know that, yeah, like our independent artists have such amazing um, thinking in this space and everyone is also interested in their personal um, shifts. Um, So, yeah, we're excited to see where that goes as well after this initial launch. Yeah, great. I love that idea of bringing people and organisations into the fold and 
not necessarily like pointing fingers, but still having accountability whilst also providing support uh, if that's needed as well. Yeah, I love the porosity that can happen when individuals come into organisations. But also, yeah, I I just think um, everyone wants to be doing something at the moment and I feel like a lot of the arts rhetoric has been in consciousness raising for audiences or, like, you know, research for artists. But we really need to shift gears a little because, you know, things are getting... Things are getting hot. Yeah, and I imagine as well, like once this gets up and running, I'm sure that will translate to people who go and um, support the arts, people in the audience, uh, they're going to be having these conversations as well. It's not just about the art that's being presented in front of them, but surely they will know by that stage that there's action happening on all sorts of levels um, and perhaps even encouraging people or or organisations outside of the art sector to to follow suit? Definitely. Like, we're starting within the arts because that's where we are situated and that's what we know, but we definitely don't want this to just be an arts campaign or just to have artists in the union, for example. Like, we see art and culture as something that is very wide and beyond what we see at the moment, which is often a very, like, narrow Western discourse of what we think art is, like painting or things like that. But we see it way bigger than that yeah yeah definitely so a climate for art will be launching at footscray community arts on the 16th of june as part of the australian performing arts market what can we expect at this launch yeah so we're very lucky um uncle larry is going to be doing an acknowledgement um and potentially having his daughter come sing a song is like the first first um, part and Uncle Larry's had a really long relationship with the centre and with both Leaky and I so um, that's going to be really special and then we're going to have some speeches and then a performance there's going to be banner making a very cute cake that we've commissioned that's going to be in the shape of a cloud um, but yeah it's I guess the first part is going to be from 9 till 10.30 there's going to be the launch official sort of proceedings and then there's going to be the first climate union meeting which will be the discussion of you know what does everyone need what does everyone want in this space and how can we like see that into the future so yeah we'd love to see people there Amazing. So if there are any listeners who are part of the art sector who would like to find out more or get involved, where can they go for more information? Yeah, you could follow us on Instagram. Um, our handle is the Climate for Art. But also you could go to our website, which is theclimateforart.com. Um, and, yeah, if there are any, like, thoughts or questions, feel free to send us an email at hello at com. Great. Thank you so much for that, Lana. Um, I'd be really interested to talk to you in a few months' time to see how it's going and what conversations you're happening, uh, what conversations are happening uh, within this coalition. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning to tell us more about A Climate for Art. Thanks so much for having me. I also just remembered there's a .au at the end of our website, so if anyone's going to that. Awesome. We'll make sure to include that in our show notes later today. Awesome. Ooh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right. That was Lana Newland speaking to us about a climate for art.
Uh, ACFA will be launching at Footscray Community Arts on 16th of June 2023 from 9am to 12pm as part of the Australian Performing Arts Market. To find out more about ACFA, you can head to their website www.aclimateforart.com.au or follow them on Instagram. Their handle is aclimateforart. We are going to go to a song now. Uh, No, we're going to go to a break. (laughs) Sorry for that. We'll be back right after this. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Please. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play a track for you next by Ethel Kane. This one is called American Teenager.
So just playing under there is American Teenager by Ethel Kane. Next up, we've got uh, a very exciting guest on uh, to talk to us about the impact of the state budget for women and gender diverse people. So WISE is a organization um, that is leading in the sector at the moment for gender equality and women's well-being across Victoria. Last week, they cautiously welcomed the state budget announcements. The CEO, Kit McMahon, has nearly two decades of experience across education, training and not-for-profits and has consistently and passionately advocated for gender equality, empowering women and girls. Kit is joining us this morning to talk through the state budget's impact on women. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Kit. Good morning, How are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Thanks for joining us today. This is um, a bit of a huge topic, so um, mm. let's let's maybe start by telling our listeners um, a little bit about WISE and what you do there. Yeah, for sure. So WISE stands for Women's Health in the Southeast, and in Victoria, we're lucky enough that we've got this infrastructure of women's health services. There's 12 of us across Victoria, been around for about 30 years. And what we do is we work in the public health system and with other social systems for equality, for better outcomes for everyone, uh, in particular women, gender diverse people, um, people who face intersectional barriers. Um, but really the, the goal is to make sure that everyone um, benefits from a just and equal society, which we know um, there's a lot of work, more work to do, eh? So that's our job. Um, so from this budget, there's been $30.1 million allocated to fund primary prevention initiatives to end family violence. This is, of course, a huge issue for women and gender diverse people. Um, and, you know, while it does sound like a bit of money, um, there's also an additional $622.5 million for family violence service delivery. Um, it actually only makes up 4% of the response investment. Can you talk a bit about this? Um, what are your thoughts on you know, how much has been allocated to this issue? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing is that I think the first thing to say is that budgets, are, you know, they're volumes of documents, yeah? And um, they typically talk about new money and a little bit about what's continuing. So... If we look at this with saying, is this going to help everybody? What we know um, is that there's been some great investment, but it's it's not a, it's not enough. So, budget the the state's in a tight fiscal um, environment. We know that, but budgets are still about governments making decisions. So, this government has made a decision to follow through on some of its uh, on its election commitments, which is what you'd expect from a, a, a budget straight after an election. But I guess our cautious concern is that from our perspective, there needs to be more work in prevention. All right? So we welcome the investment in the clinics. We welcome the continuing investment in family violence uh, response. But it's never enough because we know of the the great need and the increasing need um, that people have and women have in the community. But we also think that we need to do a lot better of understanding the benefit of health promotion and primary prevention. And this is the health, the part of the health system that stops disease, that stops illness, that stops problems before they start. And for our money, there's, um, there's not enough of that. 
but we're working to try to make sure that that's improved. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd probably say in response to that, Erin. Um, yeah, I think that's um, that's a really important point because you know just existing as a woman in in the world. Um, you know, it's constantly feels like the systems are playing catch up, and there's just, mm. you know, there's you're exactly right. There's not there's not enough focus on prevention across the board. Mm. Mm. There's some great things in this budget, right? The investment in women's clinics, um, um, specific um, sexual and reproductive health needs um, for for women. Um, we're keen to see um, how that lands, where it lands. But you can have the service, but people have got to know about it and they've got to get to it. And then the service has got to be available um, for people to also feel comfortable to come to it, right? So that's the job of organisations like us to try to get that to happen. The second thing is you really want people um, to not have to go to hospital. Mm. There's often talk about, you know, the hospitals are a great cost in our community. Right, let's do this. Let's do the work so that people don't have to go to go to hospital. And we often see sometimes a, a bit of confusion about what that might mean. This is not disease management. This is this is prevention. The other really important thing is that we need to set these systems up so that they can bring um, and be available to people from all walks of life. We need to say that, that this is more than than, than a woman, a, a, an idea of what a woman is, but, but people uh, from across the community who have different um, experiences of what it means to be a woman. So that might be a woman newly arrived from, uh, from overseas, from war-torn countries, through to our First Nations people, through to people who... Um, might have a, a body of a woman, but they don't identify as one. So we've really got to make sure that these services and systems are available to everyone. And that's constant, ongoing work. And they've got to be open at a time and a place where people can access them as well, Erin. Yeah, accessibility is... Um is a big one, especially for, you know, women who are linguistically and culturally diverse and First Nations women. Um, yeah, and just the feeling of being able to to ask for help and be able to communicate, be able to. That's right. Yeah, that's just... right. Yeah, and and what we know it was because we work in some of the most linguistically and diverse communities in Australia. The very assumption that people can self advocate, that they can they know how to turn up to a GP, that they know how to talk to a GP, that they know that they can go into a hospital and ask a question um, in those busy environments. That That's a privileged assumption. You know, we work with women whose primary experience of government has been the government trying to kill them, right? So, you know, you need to bring all these different understandings to create services um, that are open and available for people. You know, don't put the service on between, you know, 2.30 and 4.30 on a Thursday afternoon if it's yeah. for women. It's just, like, you just don't do that. You think about others in what you do. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things you have addressed in your analysis is um, getting this information at a community level. 
um, rather than making assumptions, you know, or painting everything with a broad brush because not this, you know, it's not the same for women from different walks of life. Yeah, 100%. And that's even more than just different languages as well. It's working with community as well. Yep, exactly. Um, One of the other things that is mentioned is... um, some funds have been directed to ease period poverty. Can you tell us what this looks like? Yeah, this this is great and this is a really important recognition of this issue. So this is the setting up of vending machines of, of accessible products um, uh, for women to access when they've got their period, right? And Plan International have come out and done some great research about how much it actually costs women... Um, uh, to to look after themselves because of with their with their periods that they you know that we get, so not even not even the cost of medicines as well. If you're in menopause or even if you you know you're a teenager and you're starting your period and that's a whole you know coming on events this is something else again. So this is this is really good. What we need to do, and this is what health promotion skill does, is, is wrap this around with um, the work. You know, basic things like getting people comfortable with walking up to a vending machine or walking up and asking for these products because there's still attached, there's still stigma attached to it. And I guess we know that this is already out in schools, right? But how can we make these products available to girls in schools and in the community and women in the community in a way um, that they can actually get access to them? So I said stigma before, but what about in a way that makes sure that the products is already there, that the product's in a safe space, that the product is not destroyed before you get there, um, uh, or that is in an environment where all communities can get access to them. So this is really good, but budgets are, um, are, are sort of the start of the process. Mm. Uh, then we've got to get um, people understanding what the services are for, what those products are for, and get it to them. Exactly. Um, and that's, of course, a lot of the work that you'll be doing at WISE. Um, 100%, yep. One of the other things I wanted to touch on quickly is yep. mental health, which is a huge issue for women. Um, mm. You know, they're experiencing higher rates of depression and anxiety, mm. eating disorders, um, and this has been negatively impacted by the pandemic yeah. as well. What's WISE's yeah. focus on primary prevention yeah. and health promotion for mental health? Yeah. Yeah, so just quickly, good question, great question. We want to see, as we talked about before, that the the reforms that are coming through Victoria understand that gender influences the way that mental health and wellbeing is experienced. And, And to be honest, there's a lot of work to do there. In the region that I work in, we have... Yeah, higher rates of depression, but also higher rates of presentation to hospital for suicidality with women. Um, So the work that we're doing is trying to change the system to accommodate that and create different services that that have merit for both men and uh, for all genders, Um, but also um, to actually put investment and investment for people's well-being. So it's not just about ill health, it's about mental well-being as well. Yeah, definitely. Um... I think that you know, there's just so much we could we could talk about in this Absolutely. budget. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But I think that you know you have touched on this throughout. But um, as a final note, you know what what ways in in what other ways in which Wise will be sort of continuing to yeah. advocate for women and gender diverse people, yeah. especially 
um, marginalised people in the community. Absolutely. So it's bringing those marginalised stories to the centre. So when we go and we talk into, you know, the people that run our health system or the people in, 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 who run that, that community health, we are centering those stories. We are bringing the evidence in a gender disaggregated way to show that the different experience, the different lived experience. And it's also equipping community, so going working with women in community to teach them how to work with the system and advocating for them with that system. And putting the investment in well-being and putting the time into people being well so that we can reduce the chance of, of getting sick. Amazing. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this no, morning, no, Kit. Erin, um, thank you. No, thank you so much. And we'd, we'd love to have you back, you know, yeah. maybe in a few months to see how yeah. all of this is progressing love um, as well. Love to, Erin. Thank you so much. Take care. So that was Kit McMahon, the CEO of WISE, talking to us about the impact of the state budget on women and gender diverse people in Victoria. To find out more about WISE and read their gender analysis on the state budget, you can visit wise.org.au. We're going to go to a track now. This is Common Ground by RVG.
That track was Common Ground by RVG off their latest and third album, Brainworms, that came out last week. Lisa Palmer is CEO and Executive Director of Wildlife Victoria, an organisation that has provided the community with a wildlife emergency response service for 35 years. Wildlife Victoria advocates for wildlife whenever their welfare is under threat or compromised. They support efforts by government, community groups and individuals to ameliorate threats to wildlife, particularly those that are caused by humans. Lisa joins us in the studio this morning to talk about the campaign to end duck hunting, as well as their current fundraising appeal. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Lisa. Good morning, Ivka. Great to be here. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the show this morning. Uh, Could you please start by telling us about how Wildlife Victoria provides care and support for Australian wildlife. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned in the intro, Wildlife Victoria has been around for around 35 years and uh, we're a not-for-profit organisation, we're a charity. And and back 35 years ago, our roots were really a couple of people in a lounge room, um, probably with one of those old, you know, desk phones at the time (laughs) um, that just realised that wildlife were getting sick, they were getting injured, you know, they were orphaned and uh, someone needed to help. So um, we still have connections today with uh, some of our founders of, of 35 years ago. But of course, um, time has moved on and um, from taking just a small handful of calls for help from the public, um, we're now taking over 110,000 calls a year wow. and helping, you know, 60 to 80,000 um, animals and um we now um, uh, are a statewide um, wildlife emergency response service. So we're a little like the triple O for wildlife, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, here at 3CR, we uh, really love supporting uh, organisations that have started from grassroots community roots. So that's really great to know. Um, there's currently a campaign to end duck hunting in Victoria. Can you start by explaining how duck hunting negatively impacts not only native ducks but other water birds? Yeah, sure. So, so duck hunting, um, first off, has been banned in in quite a few other states mm. for as long as you know up to thirty years. And <clears throat> here in Victoria, it is very sadly uh, legal to go out and and shoot uh, our native water birds um, for sport, really, and and um, and. Uh, Uh, you know, to take them away. So what we see year on year and year on year for a number of years is um, serious welfare impacts. Um, So our native water birds are often um, wounded and not killed outright and and left to die in field. And also, of course, you know, having been on the wetlands myself, it's it's really confronting um, to be there when the guns start going off. And it's not just our... Uh, native ducks that live on our wetlands, but some incredible um, um, variety of of of, um, of other water birds and other species as well. And I'm I'm reminded of um, last year's um, duck hunting season where I was in field and we lost an entire generation of swans. So these beautiful swans um, still had um, eggs in their nests that they were sitting on and, and incubating. And um, the majority of the swans flew off in fright um, when the guns started going off and left the nests abandoned. And, um, yeah, very sadly, um, we only managed to save one 
beautiful, uh, very young, um, probably a few days old swan um, that subsequently went into care and, and went back to the wild. But unfortunately, the rest were were not viable. So that's just an example of, of some of the, the impacts to other species. Mm, totally, because it's not just the risk of being, you know, actually hit in that instance it's the noise and the kerfuffle and people walking through their environment and Mm. all of those other impacts Mm. do you have any insights into why victoria is so behind on the times in banning duck hunting it's an interesting question because the it just doesn't stack up um duck hunting so we know that at least two-thirds of victorians and that includes regional victorians are opposed to duck hunting Uh, We know that our waterbird populations are in long-term decline. Each year we see threatened species um, illegally shot and wounded and and, and killed. Uh, So it just doesn't make sense from either, you know, an ecological perspective or a welfare perspective. So... You know, all I can assume is that, you know, the the, um, the parties that participate in the sport and, well, I wouldn't call it a sport, but participate in duck hunting um, are very powerful and have a big voice with, with government. Mm. But certainly, you know, the majority of Victorians are, are now opposed. So do you have an inkling that maybe Victoria will follow suit soon? I think it has to happen. So this is the first time we've seen the government put together a parliamentary inquiry into duck hunting. So, um, you know, all of the facts are are stacked up, uh, you know, against the practice and any independent parliamentary inquiry when presented with the facts will make the right decision. So um, hopefully, hopefully this is it, Ivka. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, fingers crossed. Um, So touching on that report, the government has announced that parliamentary inquiry into the viability of duck hunting. Can you tell us about Wildlife Victoria's contributions to this report? Yeah, sure. So we put in a very substantive submission into the duck hunting inquiry and and that was pretty much based on our own observations of being in field. So what Wildlife Victoria does each year is we uh, deploy to to the wetlands with our veterinary triage unit. So what we do, um, we've got vets and vet nurses in field um, as well as some of our operational staff. Um, We take in um, injured um, water birds that have been shot uh, and left to die. uh, So that that of course is illegal. Uh, And we also um, uh, analyse or assess um, birds that have come into our triage unit that have also been left that are already deceased. And um, what our vets do um, is uh, sadly, um, in the majority of cases, need to euthanise the the birds that are still alive because their injuries are so severe. And um, uh, when we x we X-ray every single bird that comes in, and in the majority of cases, um, they have been peppered with gunshot wound, and and the cause of death is gunshot gunshot um, and wounds and and that is illegal um, to shoot a bird if you're a duck hunter and just leave it in field. So we see lots of evidence of illegal activity. We see lots of really serious welfare impacts to our wildlife. We see uh, every year threatened species killed. So our submission really runs through um, a lot of detail, (coughs) including all of our veterinary evidence of of what we've seen and, uh, and also the significant impact 
cost on us um, and our volunteers because mm. we're a not-for-profit organisation and it costs us a lot of money um, to have to respond um, to wildlife that are being deliberately killed by humans when we could be doing other things. <laughs> Definitely that money could be much better spent. Um, so I understand that Victoria, Wildlife Victoria is currently running a duck hunting fundraising appeal. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, sure. So um, we only we do receive some government funding, but it's only around 10% of our total operating costs. Mm-hmm. And what we're actually seeing year on year is a 15% increase in demand for our service. And there's three main reasons for that. Climate change is a mm-hmm. really big one. Um, also, um, urbanisation and population growth where we are building uh, more and more housing on our wildlife's homes um, and um, also habitat destruction and fragmentation. So our wildlife are really doing it tough and what we've seen particularly since the Black Summer bushfires of 2019-2020 more and more members of the public calling us uh, because they're concerned about wildlife needing help. So Um, uh, What we're um, fundraising for is um, to assist us uh, to keep answering those calls for help and, um, of course, being a a not-for-profit registered charity, um, anyone that donates to Wildlife Victoria can also uh, get a a tax um, deduction on their end-of-year tax return. So um, June is a a very important month for us and and we're appealing Mm -hmm. to, to people that love wildlife to help us. Um, So if there are listeners who would like to support Wildlife Victoria, what are some other ways that people can contribute or get involved? Yeah, sure. So there's there's lots of things people can do if they care about wildlife. And and one of the most important things is to use your voice. So um, the only way we can drive change in our society and drive better outcomes for our wildlife is if we as people and voters um, take action. So that includes writing to local MPs, you know, writing to the Premier's office, um, you know, um, advocating for wildlife on social media, sharing some of the the posts that we put up about wildlife issues and really having a voice because we do know that when the public speak, change will happen and, you know, hence we've seen an inquiry into duck shooting take place in Victoria because the majority of the community are outraged. So there's that, um, use your voice. Um, also, to um, our primary focus is to help wildlife. So please, 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 everyone out there, put your uh, put our Wildlife Victoria's number in your phones and that's 03-8400-7300. So we're there 24-7, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, um, you name it, 2am, 5am, middle of the day to help with any wildlife. So um, please, um, you know, call us if anyone sees wildlife that are sick, injured, orphaned or just not looking right and we'll be able to help. Um, And also occasionally we'll need support for... Um, material items, not so much. I think we've got enough pouches now that I can wallpaper my house. (laughs) Uh, And we had people sending pouches in from all sorts of countries during the bushfires. But uh, no more pouches, please. But but there are times when we do um, need donations Mm. of material items. And we've got people can email office at wildlifevictoria.org.au. Even things sometimes like... 
um, medical supplies for our vets, um, um, food formula for wildlife in care, that sort of thing. So there's some of the main reasons people can help. Awesome. Well, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us in the studio, Lisa. Thanks, Ivka. Great to be here. Um, We've been chatting with Lisa Palmer, CEO and Executive Director of Wildlife Victoria, about their campaign to end duck hunting in Victoria. If you would like to keep up to date with their work, you can visit their website, www.wildlifevictoria.org.au. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 03 9419 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world will examine the links between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia-Pacific region, including India, Pakistan and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco-socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, First Nations sovereignty and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Bachani. For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, a world beyond capitalism, Saturday, July 1 to Sunday, July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR supporter. Here at 3CR, June is Radiothon, our yearly donation drive to keep the station going. The station needs your help to stay radical and provide a vital platform for the issues that get left behind and the voices that get silenced. On Tuesday breakfast, we have the privilege of interviewing incredible people who are enacting change and shaking systems that work against them. We need the community to stay tuned to diverse voices and alternative perspectives in order to create meaningful social change. Any amount makes a difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. So please donate to Tuesday Breakfast this Radiothon to keep us on the airwaves and to keep giving a platform to voices that otherwise go unheard. To donate, you can go to givenow.com.au slash CR slash breakfast. To wrap up the show today, we're going to play you a couple of tracks from artists that in their own ways are staying radical, artists that are doing things differently. First up, we'll play a track from UK Collective Salt, which is very much a favourite here at Tuesday Breakfast. This one is Wildfires. Wildfires. 
That was Wildfires by UK Collective Salt. To finish up today's show, I'm going to play you one last track. This one is by Kate Tempest. Kate is a UK spoken word performer, poet and recording artist. And this track is Love Harder. Lie on your back and go deep out Can't get to sleep, I've been sleeping for weeks now Can't open up, can't stop myself speaking The heat's on, it's freezing Keep shouting, meaning might creep out And give us all something to reach out and breathe in Salty remarks and well-seasoned Vets in the game whose inflections all change for no reason Correcting my pronouns is they, them Or he, him also works When it burns bright, oh a lover like me learns to be a fighter when it gets darker A fighter like me learns to love harder when it burns brighter A lover like me learns to be a fighter when it gets darker A fighter like me learns to love harder the family values these strangers uphold are melting under the heat of my presence Sat in the hotel buffet, gold Shining so bright, these poor folks can't eat their breakfast Like, what is that? Is that a never could place me, never could break me If my existence threatens your safety You need a little sweetness in your bowl, sugar, you're too savoury When it burns brighter a lover like me learns to be a fighter when it gets darker. A fighter like me learns to love harder when it burns brighter. A lover like me learns to be a fighter when it gets darker. A fighter like me learns to love harder. That was Kay Tempest with Love Harder. So that brings us to the end of our show. Just a quick recap on what we had on the show this morning. We started with a chat between Annie McLaughlin on Solidarity Breakfast with Carol Bennett from the Alliance for Gambling Reform on their latest report, Wanting Better Laws and Policies Against Gambling. Fung then spoke with... Lana Nguyen, who is an independent producer in the arts and a co-instigator of A Climate for Art, or ACFA, a campaign working towards the collectivism of climate response to bringing small to medium arts organisations together over three core actions. Um, we, I then spoke with the CEO of Women's Health in the Southeast, Kit McMahon, about the impact of the state budget on women and gender diverse people. And I wrapped up the show chatting with Lisa Palmer, CEO and Executive Director of Wildlife Victoria, about their campaign to end duck hunting in Victoria. Um, As we've mentioned a few times on the show today, it is Radiothon um, all the month of June. Um, So if you listen to Tuesday Breakfast or any of the breakfast shows or any of the shows on 3CR, um, please consider donating and keeping us on air. 
you know, 3CR platforms, the most marginalized voices in our community, um, and to keep these voices on air, we would love for you to donate. You can donate through our website, 3cr.org.au. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, um, and we will also upload links there. And yeah, stay tuned to breakfast throughout the rest of the week. As always, Accent of Women is coming up next. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah.